Previously on Flying the Line. Alpa's second president, Clancy Sayan, began his term on the heels of a bitter fight that ousted Alpa's founder, Dave Bankey. Upon his election, Sayan began a top-to-bottom reorganization of Alpa's governance structure in order to democratize the association. In addition, he took head-on the issue of how the quick advancement of aviation technology impacted productivity and thus the pay rates of pilots. With the advent of jet technology, Sayan created the Jet Pay Study Committee to determine how best ALPA could navigate addressing the dual issues of aviation safety and crew complement in the cockpit while protecting pilot jobs and pay. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 17, Safety and Crew Complement in the 1950s. Part one. From the very beginning, ALPA's crew complement policy has suffered from charges that it was merely an attempt to make work for pilots who would otherwise be unemployed. The third man in the cockpit, critics said, might as well be at home in a feather bed. Only a fool would deny that ALPA was worried about technological unemployment when the crew complement issue first arose. When it became apparent that the DC-3's days as the standard airliner were numbered, junior pilots began worrying about layoffs. Although the DC-3 probably had been overly romanticized, it was nevertheless a comforting machine for a whole generation of pilots. And, in an economic sense, airline pilots were attached to the 3 because its low productivity meant jobs. The size, speed, and capacity of the first generation of four-engine aircraft represented a quantum jump from the typical airline pilot's experience with the DC-3. These large, impressive machines intimidated some pilots, particularly those who began flying in the days of open cockpits. But most airline pilots made the transition to larger equipment after the war without much difficulty. There was something tentative about the first operations, though, as any airline pilot from that era would tell you. So although a desire to maintain employment was a small part of the crew complement issue, the difficulty of operating these new, more complicated aircraft in increasingly crowded airspace was by far the most important reason for ALPA's crew complement policy. We must remember that ALPA was always dominated by senior captains. And as ALPA's second president Clancy Sayan's troubles prove, it remained pretty much a captain's club even after co-pilots theoretically achieved full equality. In fact, when the first mentions of a third crew member in the cockpit arose just after World War II, the senior captains who ran ALPA were not worried in the least about being laid off. They wanted a third crewman to help get them home safely, not to artificially make jobs. In reality, ALPA's crew complement policy represented something of a threat to senior captains 
because it exposed them to competition from young, eager beavers fresh out of military service, some of whom actually had more time in military versions of four-engine aircraft than older pilots did. In 1946, Business Week declared that airline pilots feared competition from newcomers who need minimum training. So, it would have seemed logical for ALPA to insist on two pilot crews instead of three, thus limiting access to the cockpit for a competing generation of flyers. ALPA's first position on crew complement goes back to the Banky era. In 1932, Banky urged airlines not using co-pilots to do so in the interest of public safety. Arguing that co-pilots were an essential safety backup, Banky also appealed to the airline's self-interest by pointing out that it was a cheap way of preparing young people for promotion to captain. Banky got nowhere with this appeal to reason. Airlines that had not used co-pilots continued to resist them until technological changes and government mandate forced them to do so. As some airlines began advertising that their planes had co-pilots fully qualified to take over in case of emergency, the pressure of competition forced laggards to respond. The serious student of the airline profession's history should be aware that some of the resistance to ALPA's crew complement policy came from the pilots themselves. As early as December 1932, Banky criticized pilots who resisted flying with co-pilots. He cited a letter to ALPA headquarters from the pilots of a small airline who denounced co-pilots as kids. Banky publicly stated that in no uncertain terms did this letter exemplify the attitude of the association toward co-pilots. Obviously, ALPA had to get its own house in order on the crew complement issue before confronting management, which had always resisted increases in crew complement on purely economic grounds. For thoughtful pilots, even as far back as 1932, the crew complement issue was about safety, not economics. Pan American World Airways played only a small role in the early history of the crew complement issue, even though it was the first airline to fly with multiple crews. When Pan Am's Paul Ballstrom commanded the first Trans-Pacific China Clipper flight in 1936, he carried not only a radio operator and navigator, but also a flight engineer. The first flight engineers at Pan Am were actually mechanics who could, in an emergency, make repairs on remote Pacific islands where no regular facilities were available. In 1937, the well-known aviation medicine specialist, Dr. R. E. Whitehead, began describing symptoms of aeroneurosis among Pan Am pilots owing to the concentrated flying of the first year of Pacific operations. These pilots had to fly 135 hours in a two-week period during a Pacific round trip, the equivalent of nearly two months of domestic flying. The first leg alone, from Alameda to Honolulu, was nearly 20 hours. Instead of resting for 24, 
as was the common practice under domestic operations. The next morning, the pilots pushed on, sometimes with as little as eight hours of rest. Not surprisingly, the Pan Am pilots complained of fatigue and urged installation of suitable in-flight rest facilities for the crews. This remedy required full replacement crews of flying officers. The company resisted this fix to the crew complement problems, citing the expense and the tradition of single command at sea. In 1945, when it became apparent that the four-engine aircraft developed during the war would become a significant factor in post-war international travel, the Civil Aeronautics Administration mandated that all over-ocean flights would have to carry a flight engineer. The CAA's decision extended wartime rules. Civilian crews operating four-engine aircraft under contract to the military were required to carry a crew chief in addition to at least two pilots. The crew chief's responsibilities were essentially the same as those as Pan Am's pre-war flight engineer. Pan Am set no precedence, however, because it always operated under special international rules. The nature of operations seemed irrelevant to domestic operations, although everybody wondered how much the pilots should be allowed to deviate from domestic airline norms. The modern parameters of the crew complement issue began to take shape in July 1940 with the introduction of the Boeing 307 Stratoliner, which had a distinct flight engineer station. During the brief operation of the Stratoliner at TWA before the start of World War II, the flight engineer's role was unclear. He obviously was not aboard to make emergency repairs at remote bases, as was the case with Pan Am's flight engineers. His in-flight functions were essentially those of an airman. TWA inadvertently staffed the Stratoliner flight engineer position with a mechanic-trained crewman. Everybody admitted that a pilot-trained crewman could carry out these functions just as well. But it seemed an unimportant matter at the time. They were wrong. The nature of the training of the crewman who would fill the third seat was the first phase of what would prove to be one of ALPA's most vexing controversies. It was also a crucial part of what would be ALPA's greatest crisis in the modern period, the departure of the American Airlines pilots from the association in 1963. By the time ALPA awakened to the seriousness of the crew complement issue immediately after World War II, the controversy was about to sharpen. On one hand, the airlines would argue that the third crewman was unnecessary. On the other hand, a new breed of airmen would argue that the third crewman should hold a special license and have a mechanical background previously required only of ground maintenance personnel. This new breed of airmen, the flight engineer, could also argue logically enough that since he was not really a pilot and not really a mechanic, he ought to belong to neither ALPA nor one of the unions representing ground maintenance personnel. In 1946, before ALPA was quite aware of what was afoot, a group of enterprising flight engineers 
secured an American Federation of Labor charter under the title Flight Engineers International Association, or FEIA. So, the crew complement issue was destined to become a third-sided struggle among ALPA, management, and FEIA. Almost unnoticed, a competing union had slipped into the cockpit with ALPA. Although a good case could be made that ALPA had exclusive jurisdiction over all cockpit jobs as a result of its original 1931 charter from the AFL, and that FEIA's charter was thus illegally granted, Banky wasn't sufficiently on top of things to make that argument. Sayan would later declare that FEIA was an illegal union under AFL's own rules and threatened disaffiliation because of it. By then, however, it was too late. Ironically, were it not for ALPA's concerns about safety, no airline would have been using any flight engineers, pilot or mechanic. A series of fatal airline crashes in 1947 forced President Truman to appoint a special presidential board of inquiry into air safety under the chairmanship of Civil Aeronautics Board head James Landis. Three domestic airline crashes during a two-week period in July 1947 killed 145 people. Truman appointed Bart Cox of American Airlines, Bob Buck of TWA, and Jerry Wood of Eastern Airlines to the board, which met for seven months to investigate the general safety of U.S. commercial aviation. In October 1947, while the Presidential Board of Inquiry was in session, one of those rare crashes occurred that focuses attention on a larger problem. A United Airlines DC-6, flown by Captain Everett McMillan, and First Officer George Grisback crashed near Bryce Canyon, Utah, after an in-flight fire. It was one of a series of baggage compartment fires in the new pressurized aircraft. Fortunately for posterity, McMillan and Grisback lived long enough to give accurate radio descriptions of their predicament and to give investigators enough clues to pinpoint the combination of design and operating deficiencies that caused the DC-6 crash. Fuel for the cabin heaters came directly from a main wing tank. A malfunction in this system caused a fire that broke out in the baggage compartment. One of the passengers who died in the Bryce Canyon crash was an ALPA employee, Fred Munch, a young attorney. In a situation reminiscent of the cutting crash of 1935, Thoughtful investigators wondered whether the crash might have been averted if a third crewman had been on board, whose primary function was to monitor auxiliary systems such as the cabin heater. After the Bryce Canyon crash, ALPA turned its full attention to securing a third crewman for the DC-6. CAB hearings on the subject ran concurrently with the Presidential Special Inquiry hearings. ALPA stood alone in the industry, arguing that the DC-6 was too complicated to operate with only two pilots, and that if such operations continued, more disasters like Bryce Canyon would surely result. 
The aircraft manufacturers, the airlines, and initially the CAB took the opposite view. Douglas had designed both the DC-4 and DC-6 with only two crew positions. The airlines argued that a third crewman on the jump seat would have nothing to do and that modifying the DC-6 to include a flight engineer station would cost $57 million. Taking time out from his duties on the Truman board, Jerry Wood helped several Alpha pilots testify during the CAB hearings. They made excellent use of the Bryce Canyon crash during the three-day hearings. As fate would have it, just a month later, in November 1947, an American Airlines DC-6 made a successful emergency landing in New Mexico after an in-flight fire similar to the fatal one at Bryce Canyon. The CAA promptly grounded all DC-6s after an investigation proved conclusively that the cabin heater had a design error that could be compounded by pilot distraction. This information arrived just when the industry, the CAA, and public opinion were on the verge of pinning nearly total blame for airline accidents on pilots. Another incident in October 1947 added another argument against pilots. Captain Charles Sisto of American Airlines was riding in the jump seat of a DC-4 en route to the West Coast from Texas. As a joke, Sisto engaged the gust lock. Captain Jack Beck was flying in the left seat when Sisto pulled his prank. Beck made minor trim corrections over the next few minutes, owing to light turbulence and occasional movements of the 49 passengers. Co-pilot Mel Logan, who also held an airline transport rating, muttered about the peculiar handling characteristics of the airplane. Next time on Flying the Line. A seemingly innocent prank on a flight crew opens a Pandora's box of controversy, and the association's response to crew compliment fractures it with repercussions that last to this day. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter 17 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright, Alpa, 2020. All rights reserved.